I guess it was 1970, so I would have been five. My parents, my sister Barb and I, were on the 10 freeway headed back home from Santa Monica after a beach day. It was just before dark, and the sky to the west was a raging orange. The car windows were open, the warm breeze was wonderful. The radio was tuned to an oldies station that no one was paying much attention to. My dad's fists were a tight 10 and 2 on the steering wheel, his teeth clamped onto his ever-present Dutch master's cigar. My mother sat shotgun, silently chain-smoking the Pall Mall golds that would eventually kill her with a quick, neat, and easy heart attack at age 79. But all that was a long way off. For now, all was well. All was well indeed. Oh, by the way, you don't know me, but I'm Jim Walker, and this is Record. Back on the freeway there, looking toward the mountains, a few street lamps began to blink on, followed shortly by the rolling motion of a million other lights coming on in the storefronts, homes, restaurants, and clubs. The pale stars above began fading away, and then all was illumination. As I peered out the window at the lights of L.A., a song came on the radio. Can you turn this song up, please? I asked. My mom turned the knob and obliged me, but was maybe slightly curious, as I'd never shown any interest in music at all before. In all my five years of living, I'd never had any deep thoughts that I knew of. I didn't even know there were deep thoughts. But what went through my tiny mind as I listened to the song describing the city, the bustle, the lights, the music, the crowds was, oh no, my whole life is passing me by. Unfortunately, it was also an out loud thought, and everyone in the car turned to look at me. My family, upon hearing my declaration that my life was passing me by there at the brutal half-decade mark, did what anyone would do. They started laughing their asses off. I began to sob. I hate being a kid. I'm missing out on everything. Then I was blubbering and wailing. My family screamed and howled with laughter. My dad could barely drive. I can still see his face in the rearview mirror, cackling, the cherry end of his cigar going up and down in the dull light, laughing, laughing. I hung my head, weeping. I was inconsolable. A few months later, a similar thing happened when George Harrison's song, What Is Life, came on the radio while my family was in the car. There, in the back seat, listening to the lyrics, I began to wonder, yeah, what is life? What is life? What is life? This musing, like the one about Petula Clark's downtown, was also unintentionally spoken out loud. My parents looked back at me again, but this time... They weren't laughing. For a couple years after that, the car was usually radio-free when we were all driving. I guess the folks figured if their dumb kid was going to have an existential crisis every time a pop tune played on the AM station, then silence might be best. The next time I remember becoming aware of music, it was summertime. We had a radio at our house, but it was rarely on. Until one summer. I was about eight years old. My parents both worked, so they decided to hire a babysitter for my sister and I for the three months we were out of school. Her name was Dawn. She was 16, blonde hair, blue eyes, a California surfer girl. And I was paws deep in puppy love. What I knew the first time I saw Dawn was that I was going to marry her someday. When Dawn was around, I simply floated on a warm breeze. 
The summer days with Dawn went something like this. She'd show up at 8.30, then my mom would leave for work. We'd a swimming pool, and after a little breakfast and waiting the excruciating half hour before going in the water, we'd spend the next seven hours in and around the pool. California was good for a few things like that. Dawn spent the entire day by the pool. The only time she ever went in the house was to make us our lunch. Sometimes I'd go in and hang out with her in the kitchen while she made our peanut butter sandwiches. It was the only time I ever remembered the radio being on in our house. We'd listen to all those big 70s AM hits on 10Q and KHJ radio. One afternoon we were laying up at the pool and Don said to me, Jimmy, I left the radio on in the house because there's this new song that I absolutely love. It starts off with a piano and a cowbell. I forgot the name of the song, but it starts off with those two instruments. If you happen to be in the house and you hear it, will you come outside and get me, please? A mission. A task to complete for my love. Because I wanted to please my future wife, and because even at that tender age I was already a fully formed OCD case, I went inside to the living room and sat there on the couch, dutifully, listening to every song, waiting for the one to start the way that Don described. I sat and sat and sat, just listening. I may be overreaching a bit here, but I think it was because I sat there inside the house when I could have been outside in the sun, listening for that single musical cue for a couple of hours, that I started to appreciate music for more than background noise. It happened that day. I was fully in musical instrument identification mode. In that couple of hours, I listened to all kinds of pop music with all kinds of instruments, singers, and players. I heard James Brown, War, Bread, Santana, Linda Ronstadt, The Rolling Stones, The Osmonds, The Beatles, and on and on. And for the first time, I really heard it. I heard everything. I heard music. And I fell in love. I couldn't seem to sit close enough to the speakers. I wanted to absorb the music into my skin. I wanted it to absorb me. And then suddenly through the grill cloth, the piano playing an up and down line. Cowbell, maybe? Yes, this had to be it. I ran outside fast as I could. Dawn, your song's on. She leapt up and came running. We ran into the living room together. She stood there for a second listening then smiled and began dancing around the room while the singer sang. And there I was, standing in the living room, watching a beautiful girl in a bikini dance to a deep groove. Music. Girls. Girls. Music. The dots began quickly connecting in my young mind. Cue the choir of angels. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When my mom got home that night, I frantically expressed to her that I needed to be playing a musical instrument. Now! She probably wondered what the rush was all about, but agreed to let me play something. Unfortunately, at my age, my school only offered a few choices. Violin, viola, or cello. That was not what I had in mind. I wanted to play guitar. My mom thought about it, then told me she'd only agree to me learning guitar if I had a couple years of lessons on the real instruments at school first. Grumble, grumble. I hated being a little kid. My whole life was passing me by. So I did it. For three miserable years, I played that stupid violin and sucked harder than any kid in the history of the California school system. I wouldn't practice or even look at it, though I told my mom I did. Somehow I got by without ever even knowing the names of the open strings. I made up the most ridiculous excuses to my music teacher, Mr. Logston, as to why I didn't know my parts. I had a million of them. 
He finally stopped asking questions. He was so dumb with me. During concert performances, I didn't have the slightest idea what I was doing. But I watched the kid who sat next to me, Victor Kobayashi. I'd mimicked the way his fingers moved and saw away at the air just above my violin string so they wouldn't make a sound. Most importantly, I'd shut my eyes, bite my lip, and make a phony concentration face to let the audience know I was really into it. I sucked. In sixth grade, I switched over from violin to double bass when that became an option. I loved the sound of it and was way more devoted to learning it than the violin, but I had to carry that son of a bitch to and from school every day for orchestra practice. After weeks and weeks of that, I could no longer deal, and ended up just leaving it at school in the instrument locker. I showed up for rehearsal and sawed the air just like before. Mr. Logston got to the point where he'd just look at me and shake his head. He couldn't wait to get rid of me at the end of the school year. I was 11 and a half years old when, truer to her word than I was to mine, my mom bought me a cheap Les Paul copy and a little Fender Champ practice amp. And the light shone down from heaven. It took me two years of guitar lessons to realize that I had some kind of dyslexia when it came to reading music. My teacher would ask me to count the rhythm out in a couple of written bars, and as soon as I began, my eyes would shoot down to another staff line. I'd either start counting the wrong bar, or mess up and have to start all over, only to have the same thing happen again. After first wearing out a classical guitar teacher, then frustrating a jazz guitar teacher beyond belief, I realized that I just couldn't read music. I really wanted to. I tried, but it just wouldn't happen. But I found I could easily memorize things once I knew how they were played. I was the only kid at recitals without a music stand in front of me. People in the audience were impressed by that. It just made me feel stupid. After a while, instead of paying my guitar teachers to teach me music, my mom would just pay them to teach me chords and songs. I'd memorize the tune once I learned it, and that was that. I remember asking this very stuffy classical guitar teacher of mine to show me how to play God of Thunder by Kiss. He was clearly irritated, but not quite irritated enough to not take mom's money. I practiced and practiced. I spent every waking hour with that guitar in my hands. But after several months, even though I could play all the requisite cowboy chords, I found I just couldn't push it over the top and be one of those Jimmy Page, Joe Perry, Ace Freely lead guitar players I dreamed of being. I just couldn't get there for some reason. In junior high, I met another guitar player named John Purvis. Although we'd been playing about the same amount of time, John was light years ahead of me. So while John played, wailed, and wheedled all the good stuff that made the girls sit up and take notice, I was relegated to rhythm guitar. A demotion. I was so pissed at myself that I couldn't cut the lead guitar mustard, I started making up angry songs. They weren't very good, but they were songs. I wrote a bunch of them. Most of them were about mean city streets, or the devil, two things I knew absolutely nothing about. Actually, my very first song, In the City, was about mean city streets and the devil. He surveys his work through fire-infested eyes, was one of the lines. P.U. Regardless, I now had a few original songs to play. And John did not. Ha ha, fucker. At our school, we had a place called the Rap Room. It was a classroom at the school where kids who really didn't fit in could hang out at lunch hour and not get hassled or beat up. Once in a while, there were talent shows there in the Rap Room. And that's how John and I found ourselves performing for the first time in our lives. I remember being absolutely dry throat, heart jackrabbiting terrified standing there in front of my friends. But I took a breath, and off we went. My fellow students seemed kind of impressed that I could actually write songs, and sing and perform them. And no one even threw anything at me. Since none of the other kids I knew wrote songs, I was suddenly holding a few cards the others weren't. 
But after a while, and a painful self-review of my limited subject matter, I realized that I wanted to write much better songs. I started listening intently to the songwriters I looked up to at the time. I wrote and wrote. The new songs still sucked ass, but they sucked ass less, and they began to feel more like real songs. When I got to high school, I decided to form my own band. The band ended up being called Winter Rose. I know, I know. In Winter Rose, we learned all the cover tunes you needed to know back then. Bowie, Foghat, Elvis Presley, The Doors, etc. But we also had some fairly lofty aspirations for a bunch of guys in high school. Not only did we sprinkle my original songs throughout the covers without telling anybody, we also took some pretty big chances as far as material we'd learn. For instance, we learned the entire A-side of Rush's album 2112. It took us months. We also learned the A-side of Pink Floyd's The Wall album. None of those things went over so great at dances, but it got the respect of the stoners who hung out in the smoking area who thought we were fucking great. After playing a rousing rendition of the Temples of Syrinx for our fellow classmates, there were usually a few boos from the dance contingent. So we'd kick into the surf classic Wipeout, and that would usually shut people up for a while while they spazzed out on the dance floor. In ninth grade, I met Bryant Arnett. He started taking pictures of the band when we'd play dances. Then he became a friend, not only to the band, but he became one of my best friends on earth, and he still is. He started helping out with the band, hauling gear, and ended up mixing our live sound. I did become kind of a roadie for you guys because I was really interested. I wanted to learn sound and I, you know, I had no musical ability at all. So for me, hanging out with a rock band was really cool. So I wanted to record you. That sort of got me from going from doing the sound at the church for church services and weddings and funerals and choir concerts and, and that kind of stuff to me just getting the idea, wait a minute, my dad had a pretty nice reel-to-reel tape recorder. I can borrow that and take that to, down to the church, plug it into their nice sound system, because that's the thing, the church had this amazing sound system. Inside the sanctuary, it was pitch black except for dimly colored patterns on the floor made by the stained glass windows. Bryant flipped on the lights, fired up the tape machine and mixing board, set up some mics, and gave me a chair to sit in up at the front of the sanctuary, right near the minister's pulpit. I was nervous as hell. Actually, Bryant had never really recorded anything either, but I didn't know that. He seemed completely comfortable with the process. I ran through the song I'd chosen a couple of times while Bryant got the volume levels on everything. Then he said, Okay, ready? I said I was. Rolling, Bryant said. And I began. It was a song I'd written that afternoon called Chasing Your Tail. I have no idea what that song was about, but I put everything I had into it, there on that Friday night, back before I even had a driver's license. When I'd finished, Brian said, good, come on back and hear it. I sat at the back of the church in one of the pews. Brian hit the play button on the tape machine, and we'd heard what we recorded played back, on refrigerator-sized speakers that were strapped to the walls of the church. Chasing Your Tail certainly wasn't a great song, but when we heard it back, the two of us jumped up and started doing what I can only refer to as the dance of joy. Two goofy teenage kids flailing about with reckless abandon. So happy. We did something. We made something. And that moment, 
was like a shot of fucking heroin. We were absolutely hooked. We spent nearly every Friday night, and many Saturday nights as well, for the next two years, locked up in that church making music after hours. Bryant rolling tape, sitting at the mixing board in the back of the sanctuary, wearing headphones, inventing and dialing in all these insanely beautiful sounds. And me, sitting in the pew a few feet away from him, chain-smoking Marlboro Lights. Sorry about that, God. Playing guitar parts or trying to get weird sounds on this old monophonic arp act synthesizer we got from somewhere. It was as close to heaven as I can imagine. To think in those days that all of a sudden I had access to all this great equipment. We really weren't supposed to be in there. Basically, you'd, you'd spend a few days writing a song. We'd go down to the church. And originally with the, just the two track, we did a bunch of recordings where it was just you. You'd lay down one guitar and then we'd bounce that. And as I'm bouncing it, you'd lay down another guitar. Then we would take that final thing and bounce it to a cassette at the end. Everything would have to be mixed to a cassette. And I think there were times that you were actually adding stuff in as it went to the cassette. During those formative years, I went from playing only acoustic guitar or very rudimentary piano in the songs to wanting to hear a bigger sound. So I taught myself to play basic drums and I borrowed a bass from somewhere and started plucking away at that as well. Remember, there was actually a drum kit there. In fact, you and I, when you and I were first recording there, that crappy little drum kit was in the back and you would tell me, you've written a song. And I would say, okay, well, let's record it. And you would say, okay, first I'm going to put down the drums. And you'd sit there and you'd just play the drums. And, and there'd be all kinds of fills and, and crashes and everything is played perfectly. And I'm just sitting there going, okay, I haven't even heard the song yet. You know, I'm recording these drums. I have no idea what this is going to be. And then um, you would say, okay, now I'm going to put down the bass. And all of a sudden <laughs> you'd sit down and put down the bass, play along with the drums. I don't think that many people know how to do that. I mean, <laughs> it blew my mind. Oh, it didn't blow my mind at the time. What it did was it spoiled me. I thought everybody kind of knew how to do that. Like every every musician, every songwriter um, had that capability. And we would record that whole song that night. We would not leave until the song was done. I don't remember very many times that we ever left and said, well, we're going to have to finish that one another night. Because that's just not how we worked. You were well prepared enough, and I knew what I was doing enough to say, Yes, we can record this. We can put down piano and organ and bells and drums and bass and guitar and vocals and a couple more guitars and a solo all in one night. And at the end of the night, it's like two or three o'clock in the morning after we've worked maybe five or six hours because we had to get in there late. Then we have this finished thing on a cassette. I mean, isn't that kind of how it always went? Recently, I went back with the old tapes from the church, which have since transferred first to CD, then backup hard drive and now to multiple hard drives and a calendar from 1983 to 1986, and tried to calculate how many songs we recorded during that time, correlating as best I could the songs with the dates I thought they were recorded. During that time, we recorded about 186 songs. Jesus, that's crazy. I guess you can tell what kind of social lives the two of us had. I was especially thankful for the creative outlet because, well, home life sucked. My dad and I absolutely hated each other's guts and had began getting in fist fights. Real healthy. I couldn't fucking stand school, and worse yet, my band Winter Rose was coming apart at the stitches. The band at the core was the bass player Kent and myself, and then several different drummers who played with us for spells. Kent and I had been great friends for a long time, but as we were transitioning from boys to young men, we began to drift apart. One thing I remember very clearly about that time is that I never wanted Winter Rose to record at the church. 
Kent brought up the idea of recording there once in a while, but I managed to sabotage the idea at every turn so it wouldn't happen. I was very protective of that space with Bryant. Winter Rose was a live band with two songwriters collaborating. The church was a recording project with Bryant and I collaborating. And never the twain should meet. 1983, the summer we graduated high school, Kent and I lost a real great drummer when he left for college. Bryant, like our drummer, was a year older. Now he was off studying at Pasadena City College. Bryant and I still recorded at the church once in a while, but his schedule was pretty full, so it just wasn't as easy for us to record as it had been in high school. Back in Winter Rose, Kent and I had a think on it, and in a last-ditch effort to keep Winter Rose going, we decided to make some changes. The first thing we did was to change the name of the band from Winter Rose to Jet, G-E-T-T-E. A little rebranding. I still don't know what Jet meant. It was Kent's idea, but anything was better than Winter Rose. Another change was that we decided for the time being not to perform live, but concentrate completely on songwriting and recording. And this required a sacrifice on my part. It meant letting Kent into my literal sanctuary and the two of us collaborating with Bryant at the church. I had managed to keep the band and the church project completely separate for over three years, and now the two fronts would be colliding. I didn't like the idea one bit, but I figured worst case scenario would be that we'd try it, and if it didn't work out, we'd stop. So we talked to Bryant about it, and he agreed. We used the limited time that Bryant had to write and record about an album's worth of songs. Yeah, that's when we really went crazy and started busting into the, the stuff at the church and using the actual pipe organ in the sanctuary. I knew the organist because I took piano lessons from him, and he showed me how the organ worked. And I used to cruise up, I think we did this a few times, where you climb up into that ladder, way up into the high part of the sanctuary, and there are all those hundreds of pipes up there, and all those little wooden shaped, you know, different various tubes. And we were firing that thing up in the middle of the night, and just blasting the most heavy pedal cord, massive open pipe things, <laughs> and recording it. We were just cranking these things out and learning stuff on every one. The best part about the songs was that we were throwing everything into the songs but the kitchen sink. All of our creativity, all our ideas. There were tons of parts, massive vocals, and reverb for days. We learned a ton. The only bad part about the process was that the songs pretty much blew shit. Self-congratulatory, pretentious lyrics, mostly a lot of spew about making art, being an artist, and the tortured life of being an artist. Yeah. You use your right or left hand for that. So the songs were fairly abysmal, but hey, the three of us had a blast recording them. After recording that initial group of songs, I decided that it had been a real nice experiment and all, but now I selfishly wanted Bryant and the church back all to myself. But it was too late. Now that Kent had had a taste, he wanted to bring in projects of his own to record. Some of the guys Kent brought in to work wanted to do some recording as well. Being that he was a good guy, Bryant tried to help everybody out the best he could with the small amount of time he had available. But after that summer, the one after high school ended, Brian had pretty much moved on to the next phase of his life. And that was more or less the end of the church. It was also the end of Winter Rose, Jet, and my friendship with Kent. We all just moved on. By that time, though, I had developed a serious recording Jones. I had lots and lots of ideas, and now I had nowhere to put them. I didn't know what I was going to do without the weekly access not only to the recording studio, but also to my pal Bryant who was as much a co-collaborating musical partner as I'd ever had before or since. 
So not knowing exactly what to do next, I started another band. I didn't have a vision or a concept for what the band would be. I only knew that after the last couple years battling my bandmate in Winter Rose, Jet, whatever the fuck, I wanted this band to be fun. No drama, easy going. I had a real zen attitude about it. Almost a, dare I say, hippie attitude about the whole thing. Yeah, whatever man, let's just jam and see what happens. I put together a combo with a drummer, bass player, another guitarist, and myself on guitar and lead vocals. I even told my girlfriend that she should be in the band. Playing flute. Uh, after a while though, who was I kidding? I don't jam. I don't like jamming. I have no interest in jamming. I write songs, and the reason I put bands together is to play my songs. So Jimmy Garcia sort of disappeared into the back row, and a much more strict Jim appeared. One who wanted the best for the songs, and wanted the band to be the best that it could possibly be. I wouldn't say I was a tyrant, but you could sure see one from there. The lineup wasn't working. The bass player sucked, the drummer was kind of doing the whole gig reluctantly as he was in a couple of other bands and trying to go to college too. The whole idea of having my girlfriend playing flute was just idiotic to begin with. Not because she was a bad musician, she was quite good, but because flute. Fucking flute. And that's when I told my girlfriend she was out of the band. Oh, that was a fun month. Got rid of the bass player, too. The lineup changed and changed for months until we settled on a four-piece. Drums, bass, keyboards, and me on guitar and lead vocals. Now we needed a name. There was a kid who came to our school in junior high. A Vietnamese kid named Anthony. He was mentally challenged, but fairly functional. He had a big open smile and would walk right up to you and ask questions. Where's cafeteria? You'd point and say, right there, Anthony. Then he'd say, where's cafeteria? Again, you'd point, and he'd ask, again, and again, and again. And on it went until he tired of it. Then he'd go and ask somebody else another endless question until he tuckered himself out. The next day you'd see him and you'd say hi. He'd stop, look at you without any recognition at all, then keep walking. He was simultaneously entertaining and completely fucking annoying. One day a little dog from the neighborhood around the school got loose and came running, merrily bounding through the school, as happy as a loose dog could be. The kids were playing with the dog as it ran around on the playground. All of a sudden there was a deathly scream. It was Anthony. He was staring at the dog, frozen. He screamed again. That got the dog's attention, and the dog went running over to Anthony. Anthony's eyes were nothing but pure horror, and his mouth was a giant O. Anthony screamed again, turned, and ran for his very life. The dog, thinking Anthony was playing, broke out in a run, chasing close behind him. Anthony kept running and screaming like the devil himself was on his tail. It was horrifying. And because we were in junior high school, it was also the funniest thing in the world. From then on, the bullies would taunt Anthony by surprising him around a corner with a neighborhood dog. Anthony, of course, would freak out and run like he was on fire. Most kids are assholes. What do you want me to do about it? There were all kinds of stories going around my school about what made Anthony the way he was. The most popular theory was that both his parents were shot to death right in front of him when Saigon was falling. He had been severely traumatized and never really snapped out of it. Somehow the dogs weren't helping. Go figure. Anthony went through junior high with us, but in high school they put him in special ed, and no one saw much of him during those years. So back to the band needing a name. I tried to go to City College and take some music courses around this time. But me and school, we don't like each other much, so I only lasted a few weeks. But one day while still in attendance, I was walking through the music building when I heard someone playing the piano down the hall, playing beautifully. I poked my head through the door where the music was coming from, and there at one of the pianos was Anthony. 
He was playing some kind of minuet with impossible runs up and down the keyboard. He would rise and fall, never missing a note. There was no sheet music in front of him. He was doing all this by memory. Real Rain Man shit. It was unbelievable what he was doing. Then right in the middle of everything, he stopped playing, bolted up from the piano bench, and walked out the door. As he moved quickly down the hallway, he started hitting himself in the head with both of his open palms and repeating, Lost! 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 He disappeared around a corner. I never saw him again. But now the band had a name. Lost Anthony. After some rehearsals, a few live shows, and a bit of band recording with Bryant out at Cal State Dominguez Hills, where he'd gone from being a student to teaching a class in a short time, we released our first cassette-only EP, Let's See Your Credentials, produced and engineered by Bryant. I got there right as they had just built this 24-track recording studio, put in the Synclavier, put in a bunch of digital synthesizers, and they had a lot of amazing analog synthesizers, all kinds of stuff, great microphones, basically open access to a 24-track recording studio. Not any time we wanted it, but, but we could go in there, you know, and, and work for hours and hours and hours at a time, and late at night... I do, have a, I do have one memory of us naked running through the studio, running a big loop when we were naked, and we were running through, I think it was as somebody was recording their part, like a drum solo or something. As looking back, I, I have these very strange memories of that time. We sold Let's See Your Credentials at shows, and people seemed to really like it. Unfortunately, after the release of the EP and the experience of our first band recording, it became clear that our current drummer wasn't cutting it. Eric, the keyboardist, and I gave him the heave-ho as gently as possible. He was replaced in the lineup with a new incredible drummer, and the band started playing clubs around L.A. People liked us fine, but had no idea what to do with us after seeing and hearing us. At that time, bands like Poison, London, and all those glam metal hair farm bands were what was popular. We never considered our image for one second. We never had a meeting about what to wear to a show. Everyone just dressed like they normally dressed. Eric usually wore a dress shirt and slacks. Renee, the bass player, was always in jeans, t-shirt, jean jacket, and snakeskin boots. Scott, the new drummer, definitely had an 80s look going on. Shiny spandexy pants, a tight wife-beater t-shirt, earrings, hair gel. And I was mohawked, all kinds of crazy earring shit dangling out of my lobes, and I wore a tuxedo jacket that belonged to Eric's mother's first husband, who was a Native American, and dead. We called it the Dead Indian Tux. Nobody in the band dressed even remotely like they were in the same band. We used to joke we were going to change our name to Identity Crisis. The closest we ever came to a conversation about our look was one night when the four of us arrived at Load-In on a show night, all wearing hats and sunglasses. We regarded each other for a moment. Then someone said, well, if we all wear hats and sunglasses, we're going to look like assholes. So we mixed and matched accordingly. Not only was our look screwy, our set list wasn't quite galvanizing an audience either. We'd start off playing a couple of my songs a fast, almost punk-sounding thing, followed by an instrumental that sounded like circus music. Then we'd do a song by Jefferson Airplane, then an original that sounded kind of like James Taylor, then we'd launch into a Zydeco-type deal that featured Eric on accordion, when it was way not cool, then do a Frank Zappa cover with a six-minute screaming guitar solo. Most people didn't know what on earth to make of us. Our only continuity was the fact that we had no continuity. You either like that sort of thing or you don't. If you did, the adventure of a Lost Anthony concert was a lot of fun. If you didn't, you pretty much just peeked in the door of the club, scratched your head, and then went to Gazzari's. That version of Lost Anthony was by far the best version of Lost Anthony. Because of constant rehearsal, we were tighter than a gnat's ass, to use the vernacular of the band. 
You could have been firing guns at us when we were on stage, and we would have ducked and dodged, but we wouldn't have missed a note. Come to think of it, one night a guy came in who was certain I'd been hitting on his ex-girlfriend, and he got in my face about it. I knew the girl, but hadn't had anything to do with her, and I told him so. He didn't believe me, and began to drink, hard. And just as we were getting ready to start, Mr. Lonely Hearts approached the stage. He looked at me, then opened his jacket, revealing a pistol and a holster. He smiled at me, then sat down in one of the first rows of the club. Okay. When the show started, the lights hit my eyes and I couldn't see him or anyone else anymore. I spent the first part of the show waiting for the quick flash of light and loud report I was sure was going to end me at any second. I was terrified. Why I didn't just get off the stage and tell a manager or something what was going on, I don't know. But while we were playing, I don't think I've ever been as fully aware of everything as I was at that moment. The world was turning very slowly. It turned out that the sound man had seen the guy flash the gun at me, and he called the cops. So there in the middle of our set, the guy was approached by three officers and very peacefully led outside and arrested. I was terrified, but I never missed a note. Because Lost Anthony was a well-oiled goddamn machine. Rehearsal is power. A few weeks after that incident at the club, I received a letter in the mail from Gunboy. It was an absolutely wrenching apology. He was all fucked up about his ex and very confused and very, very, very sorry. I hope that guy ended up okay. Well, now that we had this new, better version of Lost Anthony, we wanted to make a new and better recording of Lost Anthony. But being broke-ass musicians, we had no idea how we were going to be able to pull it off financially. After college, Brian had worked at a couple of different L.A. studios for a while including a stint at a place called Rock Steady, where he recorded Dave Alvin's first solo album every night about this time. Then he landed a gig as a second engineer at Conway Recording, one of the nicest studios in the city. It was, it was about the, the, the contacts that I was able to make. The fact that I was working at that studio put me in contact with somebody that worked at Conway. And he was an assistant engineer there. He said, come on over and check out our place. So I said, okay. I walked into Conway and Motley Crue was recording there. To me, that studio immediately became the epitome of like the perfect recording studio. You could tell that everything that they did there was absolutely top quality, no expense spared, the finest consoles, the, the finest equipment, tape machines, every, all the latest stuff. I do remember seeing Conway the very first time. It was at night. And when we drove up to it, it had a, um, a big gate that you had to drive up and you had to push the button and a little voice came out of the speaker. And of course you had to have some kind of credential to get in. And when the gate opened, uh, you could see this pathway leading up through these trees and there were all these sparkly lights in the trees, kind of like Disneyland. You could kind of make out a, a house and sort of a, a deck. You felt like you were driving into a really lush country club. And thanks to Bryant, the four of us bums in Lost Anthony got to record there absolutely free. The sessions were always in the middle of the night after hours. We didn't care. Bryant would call us about 11.30 p.m. We'd pack up the cars and be there by 12.30. We'd set up. Bryant would mic the instruments and get sounds going. And by about 2.30 a.m., we'd be tracking. We'd usually have a take of something by 3.30 a.m. We'd do solos and vocals till about 5. Then Bryant would do a rough mix, and we'd leave the studio with a cassette of the tune at about 6.30 a.m., just before the studio reopened in the morning. The other guys in the band all had day jobs, so they had just enough time to go home shower, and go to work, poor bastards. I had a job that started in the late afternoon, so I was the lucky one who could go home and get some sleep. After recording this way for a few months, we'd recorded our new five-song EP, Home Again. Well, the Home Again EP, I think that had that brilliant piano solo that uh, Eric did. 
And we just kept pushing him and pushing him. It, it just had to be the most insane, wild solo that we could possibly muster out of him. And the weird thing about Eric is he really was like soloing, uh, he was improvising. So every time you recorded him, something else would come out. He never worked out any of this stuff. And I, I just had this weird sense that if we just keep pushing him and pushing him, he's going to come up with something brilliant. And he did. It was only after a great deal of, uh, of pushing and, and a, a, what did I say to him? I said something like, it's further. You push it further, further. Yeah, well, that's right. Every single take he would do, further. <laughs> further. Yeah, I think it, uh, it paid off. Our audience really seemed to like the Home Again record, tape, whatever. We started to pick up a little traction around the club scene. Got some airplay on college radio. Soon we were playing better clubs, opening for better acts and getting paid a little better. We played a weird gig at the beach once, a rap party for a film that starred actor Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown from Back to the Future. The party coordinators wanted us to play happy, surf-type music. That wasn't really our usual thing, but we all knew those songs already, so we did it. Our bass player, Renee, was a bit of an excitable boy. When he found out that Christopher Lloyd would be at this gig, he said he was going to talk to him all about Back to the Future when he saw him. Eric and Scott and I told Renee he was going to do no such fucking thing. We were just the hired hands, and it was inappropriate and way lame to bug some celebrity for the millionth time about something they'd done. Renee sat in the back of the van and bummed. At the gig, everything went great. We did the surf thing and people seemed to like it. During our break, Christopher Lloyd walked up to us and in that distinctive voice of his said, Hey, <clears throat> you guys are great. Thanks for playing tonight. Before any of us could respond, Renee stepped up to him, shining like a new penny, and said, You were my favorite character on Taxi. Mr. Lloyd smiled, muttered a thanks, and walked away. Renee turned to us, only to be immediately showered with, You fucking idiot! What were you thinking, you dick? And Renee, you asshole! Renee walked away to get a beer, and bummed. One of the band's greatest assets was Eric's dad, Ray. He owned one of the first Apple consumer computers, the Macintosh SE. It looked like a tiny portable television with about a 4x4 screen. Ray was deep into computer technology from the get-go. He was also a musician and a very good graphic designer. With Ray, we created flyers, posters, and also band mailers. I bought a bulk mail permit, and we started a mailing list by passing around a clipboard at every gig. We started with just a few names, and eventually grew the list to about 800. These days, you can push a button once and send something to 800 people in moments. Back then, you personally mailed a flyer to each and every person on your list. You addressed it, stamped it, and for bulk mail purposes, you organized every piece of mail by zip codes and counties. It was a colossal pain in the ass. We did this for every show. It took us all night, and we'd do it after a three-hour band rehearsal. We also put up posters in Hollywood on every telephone pole, at every intersection, in every record store window, and anywhere else we thought someone might see them. Once, just to amuse ourselves, we attached about 50 flyers to helium balloons and watched them sail away into the sunset. And some girl came to our show after finding a balloon. She said she just had to show up and find out what kind of maniacs would fly her by balloon. She liked the show, too. About this time, I got one of my songs in the Universal film Three O'Clock High, which I told you all about in podcast number one. It was great for me, but not so great for the band. 
Rick Murata, who played drums on the Three O'Clock High song, was not only an incredible drummer, but an outstanding producer. Him and I became friends after the movie and started working together on film and TV music, and also on jingles. He came and saw the band a few times and couldn't stand us. I asked him what was so wrong with us. Why were we so bad? He said he didn't think we were bad. It just wasn't his type of thing at all. He went on to say that if he was producing the band, he would try this and do this and make this thing more like that, etc. And I said, well, why don't you just produce us then? He said that if he produced us, it would be the worst experience of all of our lives. I said, let's do it. I knew Lost Anthony was good. We just didn't know how to rein ourselves in and wrangle our ideas. I was just so curious what the band would sound like being produced by a real record producer like Rick. Someone with years and years of studio and road work under his belt. Someone who was doing exactly what we wanted to be doing. I told the guys in the band that I thought it was a fantastic opportunity and that we should work with Rick, just to see what happened. If it didn't work out, that was the end of that. But maybe something really cool would come out of it. At the very least, I was certain we'd learn a shit ton. I was right about that. Here's something I've witnessed that happens to a whole lot of bands. The band finds each other, starts playing together, starts gigging together, gets good, develops a following, and starts to get serious about trying to take the thing they've built to the next level. The band starts talking about themselves as a business, and their music as their product. They talk within the group about advertising costs, publishing, revenue, royalties, and suddenly someone in the band says, fuck this shit, this isn't fun anymore. It's usually the drummer. The drummer liked it better when they were just rocking out, drinking beer, and there was the one time he got a hand job in the van after the gig. That was being in a band. Not this shit where you motherfuckers are acting like a bunch of fucking lawyers or some shit with all your lingo. Why don't you put a three-piece suit on and fuck all y'all? You can stick this band up your ass sideways. Fuck! And he quits the band. In our case, it was Eric the keyboardist that quit. It wasn't for the same reasons as the fictional, but really very real drummer. Basically, he gave us the polite version of, fuck this shit, this isn't fun anymore. And then there were three. We soldiered on as a trio and did some recording with Rick at his place. It came out okay, but because of some technical limitations, Scott had to use electronic drums, those rubber pads that trigger sampled sounds. And it came out pretty stiff. Rick's ideas were great, but the recording itself wasn't really blowing anybody's skirt up. Something I learned from Rick from working with him for several years was about playing parts. Most bands get together and just start strumming their guitars, plunking out notes on the bass, etc. Rick, having spent many years in the studio working on some of the biggest albums of the 70s and 80s, trimmed back the amount we were playing and solidified the parts we had to make them better. An example would be, if there are two guitar players in the band and they're both playing the same thing, it's redundant. One of the guitar players needs to be playing a different rhythm, or a single note line, or creating some kind of other color to complement what the first player is doing. Same thing with the rhythm section. Many times, especially with younger players, the bassist and drummer are just playing what they feel or what they're capable of playing at that point in their lives. It sounds alright at the gigs because of all the energy and volume, but no one's taking the time to deconstruct it and really figure out what's being played. Then the band goes into the studio and it becomes apparent immediately that the parts sounded fine live, but they aren't going to cut it for a recording. The parts then have to be changed. Always a tricky and touchy thing to start telling people their parts don't work. Some people are grateful to have someone tell them what to play and explain why the new way will work better. Some people hate it. Once again, usually the drummer. But playback doesn't lie. Rick suggested that we add another guitar player to our trio. Someone who was a solid musician and who could play the new guitar parts we were recording. We added a guitar player whose name I can't remember for the life of me. This guy was great. Terrific player, looked like a rock star, had a ton of experience, was enthusiastic about the music, 
and from the moment we added him, I wanted to not be in the band anymore. It certainly wasn't all what's-his-name's fault. I just felt like I was now in a watered-down version of the old band. We were starting to look and sound pretty much like everyone else. I was bored stiff. We played maybe 10 shows with the new guitarist at some of the nicer venues in LA. The band sounded really excellent, and I couldn't have cared less. It was so dull. We were expected to stick with the arrangements off the recordings, so there was no improvising. No funny stage banter. No having pizzas delivered in the middle of the set. No goofing around. Just do it like rehearsal. This was definitely being in the music business. And I didn't like it. The lion that was lost Anthony had been defanged and deballed. And now we were literally just another band from L.A. The original three from our trio, Scott, Renee, and myself, talked about it, whether this was what we really wanted to do now that the dynamic had changed. We all agreed that the spirit of the band seemed to have been sapped, but we also decided to hang in there and see what happened. Over the next several weeks, we just kind of stopped rehearsing. Phone calls became less and less frequent. There was just zero excitement for what we were doing. After some time passed, I called Renee and told him I was moving on. He was bummed, but he got it. The call to Scott was harder, because Scott had really put a lot into the band. He was by far the best musician out of us, and he spent countless hours after coming to the band later, working tirelessly to fit his style in with ours. Then, after getting it all to work, the whole thing just kind of fades away. Lost Anthony didn't even have the dignity to just die. It just blew away in the wind like dandelion fuzz. I only saw Renee once more after that, five or six years later, after I'd moved to Portland. He came to town to visit a friend for the weekend. Him and I went out, had a few drinks, and laughed our asses off reminiscing about Lost Anthony. It was a good time, and there was a little closure there. Not complete closure, but enough. I never saw Scott the drummer again. Until he found me on Facebook in 2011, and we started writing each other and calling each other and catching up, and it turned out that Scott was still a professional musician. And when we talked, we were laughing our asses off, and we realized that we'd been out of touch for way too long, and that was just stupid. Finally, we decided that it would be a whole lot of fun just to make some music together again, damn it. When wondering what the two of us should do together, it came to me that maybe we should just simply cut some of the songs we played back in Lost Anthony. Not to live in some sad state of nostalgia, but more to find out how two older, more experienced players would approach the music that they created when they were a couple of young, fresh-faced green guys. Scott liked that idea, and we began tracking. Me sending music to him via an FTP site to his studio in Southern California, then him putting drums on the songs and sending those tracks back to me to work on here at my place, Studio 515. It was such a blast doing this record. Scott ended up singing background vocals on some stuff and even sang lead on a tune. The most amazing part of it to me is that the last time I saw Scott was in around 1991. Not everybody had a home computer. There were no cell phones, no internet back then. And the next time we talked was on Facebook, then on our cells, then we do a project on our computer-based recording systems from our recording studios that are a thousand miles apart. None of it existed before. Scott and I decided to call the project Sister Anthony. The band name, a bit of a gender-bending nod and wink to our old band, Lost Anthony. But it's also a moving away from the past, recognizing that it's back there and that we're here right now, a small part of the present. 
That's the thing about time. Your memory allows you to dip in and out of it whenever you please, whenever you want to escape for a little while. It's like that song. It's a place you can go and forget all your troubles and cares, where things are great and everything's waiting for you. Just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the lights so much? And I, and I would sit back there, back in the back pew, chain-smoking cigarettes, in the, in the sanctuary. Yes. <laughs> well, the, the thing Which was, just like, everybody smoked back then. Everything, everything reeked of smoke. And it was such a big space, I think, too. I think there were ashtrays in the, in the, in the foyer. <laughs> so someone could walk into the foyer smoking and be like, hello, preacher, how you doing? And then just butt it and walk <laughs> straight into the sanctuary. <laughs> right. It sounds so funny now. I was just thinking about how crazy, I mean, it's 30 years, it's a long time. But shit, I mean, that's, that's like insane how fast stuff changed. Yeah, boy, it really did. <laughs> 